episode 22. Welcome to Dharmic Evolution. Hey everybody, I'm your host, James Kevin O'Connor, singer-songwriter, audio-video artist, and master storyteller, and Brian Foraker from Nashville, Tennessee, mastering engineer extraordinaire, is joining me today to talk about heart. Yes, White Snake, ELP, Bad Co. 38 Special, the list goes on and on, but he's also worked with Keith Olson, the producer of All Producers, so strap up your seatbelts and let's go for a ride. Brian Foraker is with me today on the Dharmic Evolution. Brian, thanks so much for being here, being a part of this show. I'm really excited about this, so welcome. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Yeah, so, um, you know, uh, the thing is, people really, most people don't understand what a mastering uh, person does and what mastering is, and... Um, you know, just to uh, let everybody know how I got connected with Brian, um, it was through my producer, Kim Copeland, and, um, you know, working with her on Music Row, and we talked a lot about, you know, the process of analog versus digital and that whole world, so I got introduced to Brian through Kim, and um, I'm just so happy to say that what a great experience, so... um, Let's start at the beginning, Brian. How does one get into mastering records? Uh, you pay a lot of money. No. Um, <laughs> okay. Uh, no, no. I, I think it's different for different people. For for me, it was an evo- <clears throat> pardon me. For me, it was an evolution. Um, you know, of of uh, going through different different phases of the music business. But as far as it's a good question, Kevin, because I, I don't I don't really know exactly. I mean, these days it's so different than it used to be. I mean, years ago, to be a mastering engineer, you had to have a record uh, a lathe to cut vinyl. You right. know, that's a that's a seventy thousand dollar investment right there. You know, so I mean, years ago it used to be if you wanted to get into mastering, you slept coffee for people, and if you were fortunate enough, you got to sit in on the session and you kind of listened and worked your way up through it. Right, it's a it's a, it's a different beast now. You know, it's it's a completely different. Uh, so so maybe I'm jumping ahead. Let me just backtrack a little yeah, yeah, bit. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, yeah. you, as a person in music, like how did you first get connected to music? Like, um, were you playing? Were you uh, were you in a band? Were you just pulled in to to do some mixing? Or how did it all start for you? Well, not to bore anybody, but uh, nothing boring st- here on the Dharmic Evolution, brother. Uh, all right, all right. Well, I grew up in Ohio, in Canton, Ohio. Okay. Uh, like every other kid in the '70s, I wanted to play guitar, so I started taking guitar lessons from a uh, a, f- a friend of mine, or a guy that I met, who's still a good friend of mine, a guy named Chris Chris Wintrip, who's a phenomenal guitar player, and uh, I started taking lessons from him, and uh, I soon I soon realized that uh, I was not a very good guitar player, you know, and. Uh, but I knew that I wanted to uh, be in the music business, and I always listened to the radio and kept saying, ah, I think it should sound like this, just to myself. And it's like, which is, you know, pretty insane for some, you know, 15-year-old kid from Canton, Ohio, far removed from the music business. But so I worked with Chris. Uh, I took lessons from him, and then he had a band uh, in Canton, and I started... Uh, 
schlepping gear. You know, I started going to his gigs and uh, trying to help with gear with, with him and a, a bunch of other bands, you know, and it was like back then it was like, you know, there was no synthesizer. So if you wanted a B3, you had a B3. So, you know, as a 15, 16 year old kid, it was like, I'll help you carry that B3 up those steps if I can get, if I can get into the show and watch, you know. So but, that, started, but I think that was pretty cool that you at that young age knew like, hey, I, I think this could sound different and better in your own mind that that was pretty cool well or arrogant depending on how you look at it but yeah i mean but i mean so i was very fortunate i knew from a very young age that this is what i wanted to do you know so i worked with chris and his band and he had a uh, guy named uh he had he had some guys that, that he worked with um and i just had a senior moment there uh, his his buddy ed um uh, is a is a is a great guy and and I I learned a lot from 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 Ed and uh, we uh, I just worked my way up um, up up through it you know and um, so you were doing like local bands and things like that helping yeah, mix yeah, and all yeah, that yeah okay so yeah, yeah. so how did so first of all where did you grow up like I grew up in Canton Ohio oh I'm sorry you already asked you that. so yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I wanted to know. How did you make the move to Seattle? When did that happen? Well, I'm sorry. And the guy's name was Ed Wilhelm. Sorry, Ed. I just had a... Apparently, the coffee isn't taken, kicked in. But All right, Ed. We Ed, got you in, Ed. We're, yeah, we're yeah, not we slapping you. you. Yeah, well, these, these, <laughs> no, but, you know, that's where it started was, you know. And uh, so I worked with, with Chris and his band. And uh, Ed was the main sound engineer at one point, And then Ed wasn't able to make some gigs. And I started doing the sound. And it was like, oh, he he's got a knack for this so so we we played you know gigs all around you know st louis and the carolinas and um you know so i was right out of high school doing actually even before i was out of high school we were doing this and um we were in a city um in collinsville illinois we were right across from st louis and there was a studio there and we befriended them and I uh, kind of became a pest and hung around the studio at night. If we weren't if we weren't playing a show, I was at their studio, kind of just wanting to learn. It was a little eight track studio at the time. It was you know mind boggling. Was anyway, it like a like a reel to reel TI yeah. type thing? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Cool. And anyway, so I did that. Um, worked at you know just kind of around that and it just fascinated me and stuff like that. Went back to Ohio. Uh, oh well. While in St. Louis, I met a, a, a band, and I, I'd heard their tape, and um, I was really impressed and stuff like that. So I got a, uh, I think a you know three inch, you know, or a seven and a half inch uh, reel of of some of their stuff. And when I went back to Ohio, there's a radio station in Cleveland called WMMS, and it was probably one of the biggest FM stations in the 70s. It it was certainly responsible for uh, a lot of stuff that came out of, that became known out, partly through Cleveland. I mean, Springsteen played there. I mean, they, they were responsible for a lot of these bands as far as playing it. It was the, it was the radio station. So I got the idea that I was going to get a job there. So I went up there and sat in their office and wanted to talk to the program director and I sat there for a day and never saw anybody and went back the next day and I think it was a couple of days and then finally 
I got to talk to this guy and uh, I played him a couple songs from this band. I said, you know, I think this band should really be on the radio. And uh, he liked it. And then he said to me, he says, well, here's some other new bands that are just about to happen or that are just about to be, or just being released. And he played me a couple different bands and one of them was Heart. And uh, so that was my first time I got to hear them. And I went back to Canton. He didn't have a job for me, even a free one, where I could work for free. So I went back to Canton. Some friends of mine owned a club, and they had the idea of bringing uh, bands to play there, you know, while they're traveling through Ohio on their way to play in Cleveland, which is a much bigger venue. It was right. Like, well, well, it's like, well, if they're going through Ohio, maybe we can pick them up for a, an, you know, even a, even an opening act. Maybe we can pick up the opening act band before they play in Cleveland, you know, they can make some money, we get some good bands in here, you know. And that's, so that's how I met Hart. That was, I suggested we brought them in, we bring them in, and um, we brought them in. I met the band. It was a really long day. I think I started at nine in the morning and worked about four in the morning. And uh, I'm, you know, very fortunate that they, they, they saw something that they liked and they invited me to their show the next night in Cleveland with, I think they were opening for Alvin Bishop. They invited me to the show as just kind of a thank you. And um, after the show, they offered me a two-week trial, which and, turned into which so turned you were, about 12 uh, years. 12, what, yeah, go ahead. No, so, so, so what did you do? You were, you, were on the, you were mixing for them live? No, 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 no. I was initially, I mean, so... So I was just a guy at this club, you know, trying to production basically, overseeing the whole production and stuff like that. And then right. they, they were impressed with, I guess, my work work ethic or something. And um, th so they offered me a two week trial. So I was one of three roadies because they were it they were brand new. This was 1976. They were in a van, and I was in a truck with two other guys. Uh, you know driving across the country so they gave me a two-week trial period and uh that was 1976 and i worked with them all the way through the middle of 1985 so know, what so. was the trial period what what were your duties like what did you do for uh, them carrying gear setting up setting up guitar amps setting up drums setting up keyboards oh okay uh, so, you know, I, was so a, I was a roadie i was a roadie. right so you were a roadie and they were they were just impressed with you and they wanted you around yeah, yeah. Yeah, cool. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So um so over the next, you know, almost 10 years, uh I just kind of progressively worked my way uh up through the up through the chain, I guess, with them, you know. And uh I knew something about keyboards from hanging out at this studio in St. Louis, so that was that was a good thing, so that gave me some knowledge. Um I knew how to play guitar a little bit so I could tune a guitar. So just all those things. And I worked my way up and then uh, eventually uh, they, the, the guy that was the mixer, guy named Mike Fisher, who was, uh, he was needing help at, at the mixing console because at the time he was traveling with the band, I was there earlier so I could give the sound company the mic chart and all that kind of stuff. So I basically became his assistant for a length of time and, uh, they were very, uh, very determined to have it sound the best it possibly could. So a lot of times mixing it took more than two hands. So I was the other set of hands, you know, and then, uh, 
eventually were they were they really really good live they were great live yeah that's i i've never had the pleasure of seeing them but i've and, been a and, huge heart fan for years man and, and cons- consistently i mean it yeah. was it was it, it was always i mean you know what 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 luck for me to be around that from the i mean it was consistently great there was hey no- i'm just gonna i'm gonna stop you just for a second because i want to go through some of your uh and we're, we're gonna get right back to the story but you know some of the things you've worked on and it's uh staggering i had no idea i was in such good hands because i'll tell you when my record came back from your office or your lab i was so impressed with the sonic value which had very very little to do with me um but but just the sound was amazing but you've worked with night ranger um saga robin mead uh calvin jones frank foster Hart, of course michelle wright beth nielsen chapman linda randall um 38 special jim brickman uh the roosters leonard skinner um it just goes on you know the wilkinsons saga um gretel lisa baker barry siegel yes Naked Citizens, Tom Cochran, 38 Special. And the list just keeps going on and on and on here. So I, I just wanted to take a little breather to let our audience know that uh, we are in the presence of greatness. So continue on with the story. Well, You're with no, heart. <laughs> here's the deal. I was in the presence of greatness. I was just lucky enough and smart enough to be in the right place at the right time, you know. So, okay, brother, you're too uh, humble. So <laughs> yeah, you know, it's But it's true, you know, it's like, I know a lot of guys that were just as uh, talented as me and more talented than me that didn't get the breaks, you know. So it, it's really, it's yeah, a combination. Yeah, but you know, there's it's a, a reason. Yeah, there's a reason why, you know, your roster continued to grow. So tell me more about, you're with Hart all this time and you're on the road, you're, you're, you're doing sound for them now, you're mixing. So um, you kind of, like things started happen, happening for you in a bigger way. Um, you ended up in LA in 85. So what happened there? How did you end up there just from being on the road? And well, no. well the, the way that went down was, um, so, so with heart, I was basically, uh, in, in the studio and in, in the earlier records, I mean, I was, I was a gopher. I was like, Oh, can you go move that microphone two inches to the left? And it was like, sure. Oh, wh- do you need more coffee? I mean, I was doing whatever I could just to be around it was like going to school you know so right part of the team uh, part of the team whatever it took so yeah um and then in 1981 i think it was we went to los angeles to make a record with uh the producer keith olsen who you, you know if you don't know who he is yes go go listen i mean it's like everything from fleetwood mac to santana to uh, all this, you know, Stevie Nicks. I mean, he was all over the the uh, just you know foreigner. Um, just ELP. ELP. No, uh, yeah, we did ELP together. Rick Springfield. He did all the early Rick Springfield stuff. Right. He, you know, just hit after hit after hit after hit. You know, probably sold eighty or ninety million records at some. Yeah. At some. No, point. they're so, all in my collection. This is a yeah. great company, man. Great company. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. So, so we did a record with him. And I was kind of like their engineer, but I was also, so he was an amazing engineer. He had a great engineer that worked for him. When you say we did a record, you're still talking about Hart. Hart. Yeah, 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 Okay, cool. So they they did a record with him. Um, And uh, 
I was just, it was, it was like a master class in recording. This was a whole different thing, you know? And so I, you know, not afraid of working hard and staying up late or whatever. So, and we became friends, you know, and we had a great working relationship. And, um, so we, so we did the record and I, I learned a lot, you know, and, and then I went back on the, we went back on the road and, um, we kept, I kept in touch with Keith. I would just check in every once in a while, you know, just to say hi and stuff like that, you know, because we spent, I don't know how long we spent on the record, maybe four or five months, but you know, and I was in the same room with him every day, every day, every day, you know, so you become either you become friends or you don't, you know, so, yeah. Um, and I know how those sessions go, man. A 10, 12-hour yeah. session is, or even yeah. a 24-hour session is not unusual in the music business. No, there were, there were many long days. So anyhow, so we kept in touch. Um, I continued working with, with, with Hart in the studio and on the road and just doing, you know, the whole thing and trying to uh, learn as much as I could and get just get better, whatever I was doing. Mainly At that point, I was working with them in the studio and mixing the, mixing the concert sound. Uh, in 1985, they did a record called Heart with These Dreams, except, you know, uh, I, I'm blanking on all the songs, but it was, it was the record in 1985 that you heard a million times on the radio. They did the record with Ron Nevison, which I got to, was fortunate enough to work on that with, along with the other uh, engineer on the project was a guy named Mike Klink, who uh, went on to produce Guns N' Roses, and uh, so anyhow, so after after that record, I, I'd, I'd been on the road probably since 1976. This was '85. I was ready for just to make records. I really just wanted to kind of try to focus on the studio, and uh, it's a long time on the road. It's a long time on the road. Yeah, and um, uh, Keith happened to call me while I was in San Francisco working on the Heart record. Um, and said, "Hey, I, uh, I'm going to need a new engineer soon. What are you doing?" And uh, <coughs> pardon me, we were. You just said finished. I'm finishing the heart record really quick. We're, fi- we're, we're yeah, <laughs> rough, basically. It's like they're <laughs> the heart record's getting finished up, and uh, uh, what you know, I'll be done in two weeks. When do you say? You know, when do you say? When when do I start? You know, so I. Uh, went to, I used to, I was actually flying back and forth between Seattle and Los Angeles for a month or two just to do projects with him and stuff like that. Then it became obvious. It's like, okay, I'm moving. So I moved to Los Angeles and then uh, worked with him for the next almost 10 years, somewhere around there, 10 or 12 years, something like that. I don't remember the exact, exact date. Right. So I moved to Los Angeles, started working with Keith, and uh, I mean – Again, I was very fortunate to to have that position and also work with some amazing artists. I mean, White Snake and Emerson Lake and Palmer and Bad Company and Thirty Eight Special and um, Rick Springfield, Rick Rick Springfield Saga, um, Stevie Nicks. I I mean, you know, it's just it's just endless. And if I miss somebody, sorry, but it's crazy, I'm, man. It's, it's like this is like the best of the best for that period. Those yeah. all those records were just stellar, yeah. unbelievable records. Yeah, we did Night Ranger together. That's how I met those guys. Um, you know, just on and on and on. You know, I mean, it was like I said, it was like it was like graduate school for engineering. 
and, and yeah, or and, dying and, and going to heaven. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And it was beyond engineering. It was it was like a graduate class in 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 the music business. You know, it's more than just recording. Uh, I mean, because there's more to it than just being in the studio. You know, I mean, so there, there's tell me etiquette. this: there's etiquette and all that stuff that. Plays right, huge I I gotta know. Tell me about Keith. Give me a couple of give me a couple of gems here, like his particular style. Just give me a few things that really stood out with you. How he handled himself as a producer and was so successful. First off, he was a musician or is a musician. Right. Not all producers are. Uh, he had an uncanny sense for arrangements. Uh, his his gut instinct was almost always correct. I, you know, I'd, I'd probably give it a 99.9%. I mean, he was, his instincts were just incredible. You know, his, uh, his understanding of feel. And like I said, the arrangements and, and vocals, I mean, he, you know, this, it's like, it's beyond, uh, a master's class it's like a doctorate class as far as with him you know studies with him as far as like vocal arrangements and getting the best lead vocal out of people um sometimes it's not the most pleasant experience the entire time getting someone to uh lay their soul on the line on a microphone trying to you know try to sell sing the song and and so everyone believes it. It's it's a painful thing. I mean, you're a singer. You know that. It's like so he would push people. He would push people. That's great. That's great. I love that. You know, and yeah. and, um, and also like um, so he had a combination of probably um, technique via you know audio techniques, but he also had the personality. In other words, he must have been great with people. He knew when to lean on him, when to back oh, off. Yeah, yeah, and that and and that's an art form, you know. Yeah. That, that, oh, for sure. Yeah, especially in, in with artists, and especially in the studio where people are, you know, can be vulnerable. And uh, no, it's it's an art form, and he, you know, he's brilliant at it. Still is today. You know, he's still working. I, you know, we I get to do projects with him every once in a while still. So. That's fantastic. Hey, yeah. tell me about ELP. That must have been a rush. I mean, very talented musicians, like they all are, but I, yeah. I, I was such a fan of theirs. Um, that must have been wild, recording that session. Yeah, it was interesting. I mean, I think by the time I did ELP, I'd already done uh, a Yes record, so I was kind of in this progressive rock yeah, world I'll at say. that point. <laughs> I, I, you, know, you know, it was like I was working with, you know, the premier you know bands of that of those genres and stuff like that yeah the they, the yes with the vocals though my god i yeah. mean uh just it, the arrangements with that band were just incredible yeah but i mean i could spend a half hour on every artist you named here because i have history with all of them <laughs> as we all do i mean i grew up listening to a lot of these bands too you know that, yeah that was yeah that was a, that was part of the thing that was a little weird sometimes it's like okay i'm sitting here uh I remember one specific thing. I was working in f France on a on a on a Yes record. The producer had gone to uh, do something with John Anderson. They were working on an arrangement for another song, and and Steve Howe was in the. I was doing a guitar overdub, and uh, he's playing it. And he's playing it a couple of times. We're getting the sound and all that stuff, and it still wasn't quite working. And 
and then I said something on the mic. I said something on the talk back about, oh, why don't you, you know, try it like this, you know, or just some kind of basic suggestion, you know, some whatever, something very, you know, certainly I can tell the guy to play guitar, but I was in the sense. And uh, I think later that night I woke up in a cold sweat, going, "What the f-, f is wrong with you? You just told <laughs> you were telling Steve how how to play guitar. Are you insane?" Uh, I don't know if he he probably was probably thinking the same thing you know but whatever we got the overdub but i i yeah it's like you know these were bands some of these bands i was i grew up listening to you know yeah. I, mean, I wore their records out you know so right he's a scary guitar player i've seen him live many times and uh just he's still got it man he just keeps going you know uh, i've never seen them live that's the you know whether yeah live in the studio but uh never have right. seen them live but uh and elp i mean you know, you got three monster musicians, you know. Scary guys. Unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah, just like really incredible. I mean, and I've seen them live probably five or six times, Emerson, like in Palmer. And it was always uh, just a stunning show. I mean, the, the way they played live together was just really incredible. Hey, so uh, how about the Starship? How was that? That must have been fun, huh? It was, yeah, it was It was crazy insane. It was, they're, they're the, the nicest people. Um there was laughter i mean there was i mean we were constantly in tears laughing i mean they're just they were just a fun group of people to be around i mean it's like you know grace slick would be telling a story and it's like and it didn't some of that didn't even dawn on me till recently i was telling my uh my son about some of that stuff and and he goes so you've met grace slick and i said yeah we did a record together and you know she was there every day and and you know she would tell stories once in a while or just something funny and, and you never th- you didn't think okay my god this is grace slick because this I'm, I'm making a record with these people i you you have to kind of you can't you know you're make you're there to do a job so i certainly wasn't going well tell me the story about you know whatever but uh, you know so i was thinking i'm thinking back on it now and it's like you know that's such history with with these people but they they were they were a great group of guys uh mickey thomas and and craig chiquiso i mean there's just you know all all of them it was just we had a great time you know yeah talented people too yeah yeah hey so brian so so as you you went through this rich unbelievable um you know experience with all of this creativity and then you ended up in nashville in uh I think '96 is that when you you yeah. moved to Nashville. Yeah. So so yeah. how did you like how did you make the the jump there? Like what possessed you to move down there? You know you were in L.A. You were in Seattle. Um, so how did that happen? That whole well, change. The reason I'm the the reason for the move to Nashville. My my wife um, Johnny, who's has since passed away, was part of a management company called Borman Entertainment. My condolences. Uh, I did not you. know. Yeah, I'm so yeah, sorry. Yeah. That's been uh, now we're coming up on nine years. But um, she was the vice president of Borman Entertainment, and uh, based in Los Angeles. Uh, actually, I met her through. She used to work for Thirty Eight Special in their management. That's how I met her, and that's 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 another story. But yeah, that's how I met my wife. Was doing a record with Thirty Eight Special. Okay. Uh, so, so. Uh, they mainly managed uh, rock bands, you know, and some country stuff. Dwight Yoakam, but Dwight Yoakam was really connected to Los Angeles as far as the record companies. He wasn't really 
didn't have a need to be in Nashville. But they signed two new country artists, um, Faith Hill and a guy named Trace Atkins. And Trace Atkins. And at the time, they were just they were really basically pretty unknown. They, well, it was their first record, so no one had really known of them. And my wife said, "Well, if we're going to manage country artists, we need a presence in Nashville." And uh, that's how we ended up in Nashville. So she decided that she wanted to open up a. They wanted to open up a branch of their office here, and you know, loaded up the truck and moved to Tennessee. You know. Okay, so it's so you know. I mean, aside from a huge loss, geographically, um, was good for you and the business. It was. It's it, Nashville. I mean. I, I love it here now, and it's the it's where I you know. But it, it's a different place. I mean, they didn't really care when I first moved here. About uh, the first year we lived here, I made, I basically worked in California because um, no one gave a you know crap about the records that I did out there. I was like, well, geez, I just did a White Snake record that we sold like nine, ten million. It's like, yeah, we don't care. You know, I mean, <laughs> it, it, it 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 was it was a funny thing, you know. So. Uh, it, it was, it, it, it took a number of years to, um, to transition, you know, for the first year, I, like I said, I mainly worked in California cause I was, that's where I had been based for so long. I was getting a lot of work out of there and I couldn't turn the work down. So I was flying back and forth a lot the first year we moved here. Right. And then this, you know, just kind of, um, you know, I always tell people it's it's about a five year uh, period if you move to Nashville before you really get your foot in the door, you know, and 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 rightfully they they don't want people just coming here for a quick, you know, quick thing. They want you here. They want to know that you're committed to Nashville, you know, which yeah, it's which kind is, of a tight community. Yeah, but which yeah. is commendable. It's like you know they don't care what you did elsewhere really they they want you if you're here they want to know that you're committed to here you know which you know it's a great right. thing so you're saying you know the five-year plan was pretty much it took time for people to get to know you and know your skill set and and little by little you you started to and it, it seems like you kind of switched over to to mostly mastering once you hit nashville yeah there's a couple reasons one of the reasons was well the main reason is uh we had a son. Our my our son Jackson was born in in, in uh, early '97, okay. and uh, prior to that, I mean, I lived kind of like the life of Riley. I was always in the studio in a different part of the world, you know. And it was like, well, I can't be a good parent if I'm in England making a record, and my son gets to see me every two months. Yeah, understood. It doesn't work. So. Um, I needed to find a way to where I could kind of be a little more in control of my my schedule, and uh, I'd always been interested in mastering and uh, on all the heart stuff and all the other projects. After that, I was always at the mastering, and I just always ask questions and um, respectfully because you can ask too many questions. You gotta, you know, it's it's there's an art form to asking questions too, especially if you're in an environment like that. But Right. So I, I, it was like, okay, well, uh, I can, I can do this, or I can attempt to do this, and uh, I started 
switching over, you know, because like I, get, like I said, I can't be in the studio 12, 14 hours a day um, along with my wife who was just, you know, always working and stuff like that. It's like there's no way to raise a family. So I, in, in essence, I became Mr. Mom and I built built a room at the house and I worked around uh, my son's schedule. <laughs> great, <laughs> um, great. Yeah. So you were able to, hey, um, so so you did this. I wanted to ask you another question. Best practices how do you protect your your ears, which are your most valuable asset given the business that you're in? Like, what do you do to to ensure that you're not getting burned out? I I don't listen loud for okay. for for any length of time. Uh, I never have. Uh, I I wear earplugs if I go to a concert. I, we went to see the Stones a few weeks ago. I had earplugs in. When saw Stevie Wonder, I had earplugs in for part of the show. But I mean, I have nice earplugs that they don't completely you know they're i guess they're professional earplugs or something like that but they just knock this the 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 level down they don't take the frequencies out of it so you what, can what still are you, hear what are they called where do you get uh, them music <laughs> store i don't know come okay in a, come in a little silver tin okay uh, silver tin music store people yeah there there you go yeah <laughs> like i mean they're like 12 bucks or something like that so um but so i've always protected my ears e even when i was uh mixing in the studio um in la if it's like the band would wanted to hear it loud like when there was after i got the mix to a certain point they wanted to hear it i would usually uh leave the room and have yeah. have, have either show them how to hit play or have the assistant engineer uh hit play and i'd i'd go out and get a cup of coffee and uh and I would I would listen from the kitchen, you know. I could still hear, it. and actually, that's a, it's a good it's a good way to hear stuff is from a distance. Sometimes you leave the room, and it's like, oh my god, that snare drum's way too loud. Right. In the room, it doesn't sound loud, but you go down the hall, and it's like, oh, that's crazy, you know. So I I've always just done that. Um, concert wise, you can't turn it down because you're there to you know. So concerts. Uh, it was what it was, you know, and uh, our show, the heart shows, you know, it was my job to make it, you know, when when that kick drum went off, you know, it was like I wanted everyone to feel it in their feel it in their chest. So those right. shows, you know, but now since mainly mastering and mixing, uh, don't listen loud. I take lots of little breaks. Might just get up, walk outside for five minutes, you know, to rest my ears, or, um, you know, I'm. I've got some smaller speakers, kind of like people that used to know what oratones are. You know, there's it's a little four-inch speaker uh, that was kind of like the standard in the '70s and '80s for mixing. You know, it's, right? So you flip back and forth between yeah, that so and the big I'll, monitors. Yeah. So I'll yeah. listen on those for a while. You know. So. Uh, yeah, I bring it up because uh, it's pace. I think it's important. It's important. Know. Yeah. I mean, I I've done the same thing. I've been very lucky. I have not had any hearing damage, and. Uh, I do kind of the same thing, you know, really cautious about if you're mixing, start real low because invariably you turn up, right? Like it just happens. Right. Um, and a lot of breaks and things like that. Hey, um, how about uh, words of wisdoms for, for like, like from you as a mastering engineer, can you impart some best practices, if any, to artists, producers, engineers that make your work easier and make you make the mastering um, have the ability to to shine even brighter 
Anything you can share on that, or does well, it just have to be a skilled uh, engineer? No, it doesn't have to be. One, you know, back to your point about protecting my ears and volume and stuff like that. One of the things that uh, got drilled into my head in the uh, in, with working with Keith was that. You know, you're always looking for consistency from, you know, so you have to have a point of reference and stuff like that. So, this is Keith Emerson or Keith Olson? Keith Keith, Keith, Olson. Keith Olson. Oh, so, gotcha. on the console, the volume control, we had a Neve console. So, the monitor control, basically, there was a grease pencil mark of where the volume should sit. Most of, you know, that's, that's, that's the volume that you mix at, that's the volume that you listen at. Okay. So, you knew where that was all the time, you know, so, um, and everything was kind of calibrated. So when you went to the small speakers, it didn't like blow up the small speakers. Everything was kind of, but it, and I still do that. I have a, uh, a dangerous, uh, dangerous music that one of their, 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 uh, control systems. And there's a, there's a notch and that's where, when I start a project, that's where it goes because that's the optimal volume for me in my room. And so if I get something from somebody and it's too loud at that point, then I know that something's something's wrong somewhere. Or if it's not loud enough, I have to bring it up. And uh, that I would say that's one of the things that people can, can work on is uh, find a, a volume and not too crazy loud because too crazy loud everything sound good, sounds good you know so you find and you listen to everything at the same at that set that monitor controller at that spot or headphone amp or whatever it is and then you build you build a point of reference so it's like as you're listening to say you're doing you have a band and it's kind of a uh i don't know it's it's a country thing that's kind of like Keith Urban or something like that listen to a Keith Urban thing and then listen to your thing, but don't keep changing the volume back and forth because you're losing your perspective. Right. You know, and then and then when you're when someone's mixing, um, it's that's the same thing because if you have that volume controls kind of set at one spot, then when you're when you're mixing, and you're you know you got the drums and the bass going, you know that it's right because it was the same as the song before that. And then the balances be from song to song will be much more consistent, which makes my job a lot easier. Because if you get one song and the kick drum's too loud, then you get one song where the kick drum's not loud enough, you know, then I've got to try to, you know, fix that, you know, because mastering like a CD or I still do some vinyl stuff that I send out, but and if it's a full length record, uh, no one, um, any mixer is going to, there's going to be slight, you know, differences from song to song a little bit, you know, like the vocal might be a little louder on this song and there might be, you know, it's just, that's just the way it goes. But when I, when I listen to a record and when I'm mastering a record, one of the things that I do is always, and it bugs, it bugs producers, it bugs Kim and some other people like, I need the running order. It's like, well, we don't have it yet. It's like, well, I can't really start this till I have the running order. And, and I mean, I can listen to it, but I can't like actually do the mastering because I, I master it in the sequence that it's going. So as I'm... So you want a sonic envision of, okay, it's going to sound like this as a whole album. Yeah. And then yeah. so like if song number two, the vocal is maybe mixed a little louder either on purpose or 
not on purpose. It just happens to be sitting up a little bit. Well, that song's going to sound louder than the song before it or the song after it just because the vocal's louder. So it's you, it's it's a it's it's a balance of trying to find okay does the vocal need to get tucked in a little bit or it could be the it could be the vocal it could be the kick drum it could be the snare drum it could be any different thing but and my goal is from song to song on a CD is that there's a consistency so you know you're not constantly you know if you had a CD on those old antique thing CDs if you're not you're not constantly flipping you're not constantly turning one song up or turning one song down it needs to be a you know a a uniform listening you know in, the, in essence right. you know I mean obviously yeah. you know a, a rock song coming out of a ballad it, it'll feel more powerful but volume wise they'll probably be very similar you know right so for people out there who who really not clear about mastering uh, when Brian does this work, he doesn't have the, um, you know, the flexibility to go and turn up just the bass drum and just the guitar or whatever. He's mixing two tracks. So this is really the final polish that goes on a record, you know, the final final EQ and, and all of the good things that you do. Hey, uh, tell me about, Brian, um, uh, analog versus uh, digital and how you mix. How do those two worlds uh, mesh and um, and Coalate together. Well, you know, being the age that I am and growing up in the analog world, you know, it was always analog. So that's kind of uh, that's what I know, you know, and that's what my ears are kind of attuned to, I guess, you know, and stuff like that. So I use a combination, you know, I, I use a combination of uh, digital and analog because there's some digital tools that um, the analog versions are different you know and uh, not saying the one's better than the other but sometimes you know a, uh, a digital de-esser on a vocal you know or something like that uh, is better so I use a kind of a combination I'm, um, I probably I don't know uh, I've got uh, f three or four different uh, analog EQs and some analog compressors and um, uh, uh, analog tape simulation thing along with a couple tape machines you know so I use some of that along as as long as well as with some some plugins it's you know sometimes it's sometimes I'll just run it through a pull tech uh, with you know an analog pull you know stereo pull tech or a pair of pull techs right uh, without any of the EQ with with no EQ on it but just to get that tube you know sound you know, and it's and it can be it can be subtle or it can be drastic, but sometimes just running something through that along with some uh, a digital plug-in or two is all it needs. You know, so I mean, it, it's really it's a it's a kind of a hybrid world. You know, and then uh, same thing with mixing. Um, you know, I've got some Neve stuff and some API stuff and Avalon, and uh, sometimes it's a lot in the box and then I'll run the whole thing through the through the Neve compressor you know before I print it you know just to give it a little bit of that sound you know well uh, I gotta tell you you know when when my I said this earlier but when my record came back I was just floored at what you did with it it was just well, fantastic thank you, thank it you. Was that, great 
And and I had the the great privilege of being in a mastering studio. It's a it's a EP I did many many years ago when I was first started making music. And I went to uh, I think it was Sterling Sound in New York City. Uh, Ted Jensen. Yeah. So I was Sterling, at the yeah. session. Yeah. And man, I tell you. Talk about the kid in the candy store. You get a chance to go to a mastering session. It was like, I'm telling you, man, it was like um, if I did drugs, that was probably the crack cocaine of my, <laughs> my life. Because, and, and I don't do drugs, just to preface that. But, but to be in there with that equipment and listen to that, I'm like, wow, I wish everybody I ever met in my life could hear this. Because <laughs> it was that good. You know, all yeah. of the qualities came out of all the work that went into it and um it's such a disappointment today with you know mp3s and earbuds and so forth that people don't get to revel in the beauty of you know the uh, the great sonic landscapes that are still being created so um let me ask you this brian is mastering your favorite thing to do out of all the different pieces that you've done through your career i i know you're you're kind of settled on this right now but like looking back um is there any one particular discipline about all the different things you did in music uh that did you kind of say yeah that was my favorite gig man it's 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 tough because they all were um i just mixed something um a couple of weeks ago for uh, a friend and a client out of Las Vegas. And uh, there's just something about mixing something. Cause you got, it's a, it's, it's a jigsaw puzzle. Cause when I get it, it's just, there's, you know, there's, there's, you know, there's no mix basically. It's like, or they might've done a rough mix, but I don't, if, if they had something specific, I'll listen to that. But I mean, they're, they're coming to me t- for what I do. So, the mixing thing is like a jigsaw puzzle, and when you put it together and it all fits, it's there. There's, there's, that's a pretty good buzz, you know. But, and I, I kind of miss the days of, uh, you know, mixing, you know, mixing. Well, Heart was the main band that I mixed live, but mixing that and 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 feeling the excitement of the crowd, you know, when you know when when they go into a certain, you know, go into a Barracuda or pick a song, whatever. But when they would go into a song. That's another kind of buzz, you know. Right. And then I get a buzz when people like you say, "Man, I just love what you did." That I mean, so they're they're all kind of you know, they're all different. I guess they're all different versions of you know a, a drug. You know, they're all different kind of things. And the you know the thing cutting tracks with bands too is was also because there was a you know there was this teamwork of people and uh, you know people would go in and they would you would cut a, you would run the song down and it's like you'd make tweak the arrangement you know like you know and stuff like that and change the tempo and you go now eight bars of this four bars of that okay and then then once you've got all that dialed in and then there's that magic take and every and and usually everybody knows which one's the take you know nowadays with pro tools it's like oh let's let's cut this version in and cut that version in and i get that but you know, I, I, I'm of the mind of let's get a, let's get the take, you know, let's get the one that, that works for, there's this invisible thing that works, you know, it's like, I did that with a band, uh, last October and they wanted to, uh, we were using, uh, Zach Brown studio and, um, you're cutting through tape on a system called clasp to pro tools so you're getting this you're getting the sound of tape on the way in and stuff like that and 
And we did the take, and I said, no, we've got to change this, change, slow it down, whatever. And we made a couple of changes. And then they said, well, we'll just do a couple of passes. You can cut it together. And uh, I said, no. And a couple of these were younger guys, and they went. They looked at me like, what do you mean, no? It's like, that's not the way I've ever made records. I mean, I've cut tape together. There's no doubt about it. But right. but not as a crutch, as it's like, well, you know what? That's That, that take is like in the days of tape it was like that's the take except you know that last that bridge is just better on take five let's cut that in but in general it was all it's it was like let's get the take so these guys were looking at me like what do you mean it's like we're going to get a take we're going to get the take we're going to find the one that feels best i mean we might run it five or six times or whatever it doesn't matter get the one that's the take and this then same thing with the guitar player when he was doing leads he goes I'll just give you five or different, five or six different, you know, takes, and then you can cut one together. And I was like, no, we're gonna get a, we're gonna get the guitar solo. It's like there's the guitar solo. I I don't want to have to. People wait too long to make decisions. It's like, well, especially your, if they're they're skilled musicians, you want to capture yeah, these, that. You these, know, it's, these guys are were great musicians. I mean, it's, yeah. it's Nashville. They're all. I mean, it's you know. The level of musicianship here is is frightening. Oh, I know. But, <laughs> it's pretty scary. <laughs> yeah, as you know, you know. Yeah. So yeah, it's it awesome. Was, it's a it's a different. It was a different uh, thought process on 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 doing it. You know, and and I'm I'm of the mind make a decision. Don't 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 wait till the mix stage to make a decision. It's like is that the guitar sound? You know, okay, it's through a Marshall, it's through a Twin, whatever it is. Get the tone you want. And make the commitment, you know. Right. I mean, good, it's 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 good. It's good, solid counseling um, because yeah, we, the technologies, it's taking away too much these days, you know. Well, it's, here's an example. I, I was mixing a pop thing for uh, a girl from Slovakia a couple years ago, and uh, they sent me the stuff to mix, and they'd done it in Logic, and uh, uh, you know, it's the world of I don't have that plug-in kind of thing, you know. So I open up in Logic and I'm listening and it's like, man, these guitars are really clean, you know. It's like, and I remember listening to the rough mix and the guitars were distorted. So I talked to the guy and he goes, oh, well, I never printed it with the plug-in. I just always, because I kept changing it. And it's like, no, fuck, pardon my French. You might have to bleep that, Kevin. But it's like, make a, make a freaking decision. It's like, okay, this, this guitar part is clean. This one's crunchy. This one's this, that. You know, it's like, um, you know, I mean, Jack White is brilliant at that. Jack White runs a, uses an A-track, you know. It's like the drum sound is the drum sounds. I think it's usually two faders. It's like the, you know, kick on one and snare and everything else on the other or three. I, uh, I don't know. It's very It's very limited. It's like, uh, we'll change the drum sound later. It's like no, you bring up, you bring up the eight faders, and there's you know, there's yeah. roughly what there's the song. You know. Yeah, I agree. Jack is great at that because you know he's basically defining the personality of the song right off, right out of the gate. Because there's, if you're you're going to do that with clean guitars when it should be dirty guitars, we really really don't know the personality of the song. Right, right, it, and 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 you're always fishing for that, you know. And it's like right. Um, and years ago when I would get when i was mainly at one point i was just mixing records for people and you know it was the the tapes would show up you know and tapes and a track sheet you know it's like uh so i had no i you know it's like 
I didn't know which guitar part was more important than the other. To me, um, I just built the mixes around the song, but it was like, the, back then it was, you would never, the guitar part was, okay, well that one's through a Marshall, that one's through a, uh, a tweed, you know, Fender, you know, or whatever. But they were, it was done. It was like, okay, that's a distorted guitar. That's a clean guitar. I, I know that. You know, it's not gonna, it's not gonna change down the road. And these days, you know, because of Pro Tools and all these, you know, other DAWs, you know, it's like, uh, you don't have to, you don't have to make a decision. I say make a decision, you know, and live with it. Right. You know? Right, because you'll never decide. <laughs> hey, um, let me ask you this. What is, yep. uh, as we're getting into the, to the final rounds here, what is hot for you uh, this year that you're like really excited about for the rest of uh, 2015? Like any cool projects coming up that you're really pumped up about? Anything you want to share with us? Well, there's this guy, Kevin, that's got a record I think is coming my way. So. <laughs> I don't, you know. Oh, oh Kevin and Klein? I'll, is he making yeah, a record? Yeah, yeah, he yeah, hasn't Kevin told Klein. me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, no, you know, it's whatever's ne- you know. I'm most excited about whatever's next. You know, I mean, right. Uh, and and I'm fortunate because, uh, you know, I do every kind of music, and they're all over the place. I mean, uh, this thing I'm just finishing up. It's kind of jazz, upright bass, and horns, and all that kind of stuff. And then, uh, right before that, I. Uh, uh, an, a good friend of mine, a drummer named Denny Fongheiser out of Los Angeles, is doing all these uh, European remixes and stuff like that. So it's all these crazy loops and hit, well, and him playing just all, I mean, just insane kind of stuff. So I'll go from, you know, doing a jazz thing to kind of some kind of trance dance thing, you know, and then someone will send me a bluegrass thing and then I'll do a heavy rock record, you know. So people probably think I'm. I'm schizoid because I kind of bounce around, but uh, must be fun though. That's one of the pleasures of mastering is uh, I don't get pigeonholed into one particular thing. I used to get in, in, in the days of making records, uh, it was like, Oh, well let's get this guy cause he does that kind of record, you know? And, and it was funny because back, I hate to use the term, but back in the day, as they say, um, you know, for a while, I mean, I did, uh, I did 38 special and it was like, Oh, well he does Southern rock. So then I was getting pitched to do Southern rock records. And it was like, okay, well, yeah, I, I, I can do that. And then it was like, I did a, a yes record and all of a sudden I was getting pitched all kinds of progressive rock stuff. It's like, well, yeah, I can do that. I can, but I can do, you know, so t- it's enjoyable now that I don't have to, uh, you know, it, it's, it's enjoyable because I get to listen to all kinds of different music every, you know, all the time. And uh, so people, you're so established now that, you know, I wanted to ask you also about getting business. Um, is it pretty much people come to you? I mean, you don't have to go knocking on doors anymore. I mean, you haven't, you know, obviously this reputation, um, does most of your business come from producers or just everywhere? It's word of mouth. Right. I mean, it's like, you know, um, and you know, some of us label stuff. Some of it's indie artists. It's, I mean, as we all know, the music business has changed, so there's not that many labels uh, these days, and there's not that many artists with big record deals. So, right. uh, you know, uh, somebody will hear. You know, some indie artist will hear some record that I did, and they'll go, "Oh, who did that?" And they'll say, "Oh, my this friend of mine, Brian. He did it. You got to check him out." You know, so 
everything's word of mouth, you know, which uh, I, I think ultimately, Best way. I, yeah, I think it carries more weight versus, you know, having the website and all that stuff. And since I do different styles of music, um, I, I think on some levels it would confuse people, you know, so, um, you know, it's just, it's kind of just the way it's gone. You know, I probably could, probably could be busier if I had a website and did all that, but, um, I just haven't, just haven't done it, you know? Okay. La so lazy, so, I guess. Well, listen, it, it, business must be good. That's all I can say. And the quality of your work speaks for itself as far as I'm concerned. So well, could you. you, um, could you please share your email address for anybody trying to reach you? Sure. It's, it's Brian, B-R-I-A-N, at Four Acre Mastering, which is F-O-R-A-K-E-R Mastering.com. Excellent. You guys heard it from Appreciate the man it. himself. And um, hey, you're, so you're still in touch with Keith, huh? Keith Olson? Oh, yeah, yeah. We talk. That, uh, that's fantastic, man. That's yeah. a, a, It's great when those kind of things develop into friendships that just last, you know? It's so cool. Hey, uh, Brian, I wanted to thank you so much for being a part of the Dharmic Evolution. Really enjoyed, uh, you know, just taking this trip down memory lane. Um, I, I love this stuff that you brought out today, and I'm sure the audience did as well. So uh, I appreciate it, brother. And uh, be looking for my new project to hit your your uh, lab very, very soon. <laughs> I can't wait. <laughs> oh, I, I appreciate it. I had, I had fun. And, uh, you know, if anybody has questions, you know, send them send them to me as well I, you know you don't have to just send me you know an email about doing some work if you got a specific question shoot it to me so if i can be of help because you know i didn't learn this stuff you know on my own you know i i had lot lots of people that uh over the years that i was fortunate enough to be around you know and that's how you learn you know so yeah, isn't it isn't it great? The creative process is like nobody can do anything by themselves. You know, everybody. It's like a just. It's such a community driven art form. You know, it it is, and and like I said, I I was been very fortunate over the years to work with, I mean, just some amazing producers and engineers and artists, and it's like you know, I mean, you know, it's like, and you know, I was. Uh, giving a, uh, a talk recently at Belmont University. I know I'm running on here, but um, we were talking and it was like somebody was asking something about producers. And I said, well, you learn what to do and you learn what not to do. You know, it's like, because there's certain things, you know, it's like, but I mean, like I said, I've I've been fortunate to have been in the room with some of the premier producers and engineers in, in the world. I mean, you know, Keith and, and, you know, Ron Nevison and uh, Mike Flicker, who did all the early heart records and uh, Jimmy Iovine, you know, and, and there's, you know, some brilliant engineers, you know, Shelly Yakis, you know, if you don't know who Shelly Yakis is, you, sh you should just like all the Tom Petty and Stevie Nicks. Yeah. And oh, man. It's just Dave, like Dave Thoner's another guy that I learned so much from who did all the, a lot of, uh, ACDC and Jay Giles. I mean, this is, you know, countless, countless people that I was fortunate enough to be around. And we're going to, we're going to need at least two more interviews, Brian. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> probably so. But, um, coffee's kick the coffee's kicking in Kevin. <laughs> hey man it was it was fabulous thank you so much again everybody brian foraker thanks for being a part of dharmic evolution i'll be in touch with you soon brother all right man appreciate it thank you take care
could have stayed on that for another two hours. That was uh, riveting, you know, to hear all that musical history. And for those of you out there who have that uh, legacy, even my own son, he, he right now has my entire vinyl record collection on loan. He's had it for like years now. <laughs> But, uh, wow, what an experience. Um, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. That was really awesome of Brian to come by and share his legacy, all about Keith Olsen and all of the projects, man. It was it was really cool. So, anyway, I am your host, James Kevin O'Connor, singer, songwriter, audio, video artist, and master storyteller. Thanks so much for dropping by the Dharmic Evolution. And I'll either see you on the socials or I'll see you from the stage.